name is Gene, and I, too, am an alcoholic. <laughs> now, tonight, this is the second thing that I usually get to our guest at Myrtledale with, uh, sort of show him a little bit about my understanding of what happens to you and I as alcoholics. Now, ironically enough, if there be anybody here tonight who is not alcoholic, uh, this particular meeting can apply to just about anybody, anybody. But as alcoholics, as a group of alcoholics, uh, we're more interested in the disease of alcoholism, so we apply this to that. Now, all people, all people strive for one thing, I guess, and it's rather ironic that we do this too. Uh, most of us spend about 99% of our time in existence trying to prevent the inevitable. Now, the inevitable is death. We all know that sooner or later we're going to die. But we run around from age one to age 99, some of us, trying to prevent that death. Now, most of us have been taught or come to accept death as a final thing. And another thing that it's easy for you and I to accept is birth. We're all sure of birth and we're all sure of death. But it's that in-between, that in-between between birth and death that seems to be a son of a bitch for most of us. Now, we're going to talk about that in-between tonight. Now, I don't have to tell you how you're born or how you're created. I don't know how agnostics get here and atheists get here. But most of us are created by a supreme being. Many of us refer to this supreme being as a god as we understand him. Now... You and I have conceived most of the time, I guess, through a state of wedlock. Some of us weren't, I guess, too. I have been referred to one many times. <laughs> and we spend a period of our actual life in complete darkness, that nine-month incubation period where we lie within a woman's womb in a state of darkness. This average length of time, normal length of time, is about nine months. And then, at the end of the nine months, the miracle takes place. Uh, you and I are removed from a woman's womb. Uh, we're hung by our legs in most cases. And some doctor slaps us on the ass, and, and life starts. That's life. Life is there. Now, one thing that most people do, they dedicate the remainder of their life, the remainder of their existence, in a strong endeavor to not only make their world a bright place to live in, but by their efforts trying to create brightness in their own life, they create brightness for everybody around them. Now, how do you get brightness in your life? Well, right away, as soon as you're born, you get a brightness in the form of love. Love from the mother who holds you in the arms and rocks you and protects you, giving you shelter. Shelter and protection are brightness. Anytime. Anytime, and this is hard for a lot of people to believe, anytime you have this combination, regardless of what kind of a situation you're in, where you are, or how rotten the world seems, if you have the ability to live some form of love and protection, you have to have a degree of happiness. It's impossible not to have a degree of happiness. How about the guy that comes into his first AA meeting with his pants all torn back and no shoes on, beat up, sick, confused, bewildered. He don't have a damn thing except the ability to still breathe. He has the love of the group and the protection of the group. He has to have a degree of happiness. I can remember when I was uh, a migrant, alcoholic, uh, on my 
working on my study in alcoholism, not under a grant or anything like I financed it myself. But just to show you how a state of happiness can exist regardless of conditions, many people would attribute happiness to be spending an evening in San Francisco, dining at a nice restaurant, uh, enjoying lobster and wine. Now that sounds like a, a big degree of happiness. Well, I've had the same thing, but I sure as hell wasn't in the Fairmont. I was in between Chicago and St. Louis once, just outside of a place called Cape Girardeau, and I had swiped some wine from a Walgreens store, and I stole lobster tails out of an A&P, which is the same thing as your Safeway stores out here. And I was holed up in the culvert underneath the bridge, Highway 51. I was protected by that bridge because it was raining, and I was cooking the lobsters in an old can that I found. It was rusted in hell, made the lobster turn brown. But that was all right, and I had some cigarette butts in my wine. Now, there I was, actually a mess, but happier than hell, washing my feet in a little creek, and it was raining. A cop came along and busted that all up a little while later. But you see, that was brightness in my life. As you and I mature a little bit, maybe we get to be one or two, we take upon ourselves friends, friends. We get to know other little kids around, the kid in the next crib, kid out in the bassinet, the one that the nurse is holding. And from friends comes the basic form of education, basic form of education. We use it in AA. The most priceless form of education is experience from each other. We learn long before we enter into any formal process of education. We learn from each other. It sounds familiar because we have a definition that says that. We share experiences, strength, and hope with each other. You and I did this at age two, three, and four, and five. We shared with each other in a process of learning. Now, everybody has to learn. Other people learn in different ways, but no one of us is stupid. A guy could say, you know, well, uh, you're smart because you know how to drive a car. You know, there's a lot of ignorant people in, in India. But they have learned in their way, from their own experiences. It's true, I could probably drive a car where a guy in Bangladesh can't. But I'd have a hell of a time blowing a fute and getting the snake to come out of a basket. <laughs> and he knows how to do that because he has learned from somebody else. As we mature a little bit more from these friends, we gain knowledge. We gain this knowledge that we're talking about. We learn things from each other. I guess the first thing that most infants learn is something that most alcoholics depend upon in their later life. The first thing you and I or any other infant learns in order to get attention is to feign sickness. Meh, I need help. Meh, meh. And in comes mother into the crib. What's the matter with the dying, you know? That's the first thing we learn. And that's what happens many times with alcoholics. I believe it was last week that I said, sometimes, this is only my own opinion, sometimes the, the disease of alcoholism or any other kind of neurosis is a handy thing to have. You know, it's a handy thing to have. It'll get you a hell of a lot of attention. You may not know what kind of attention it's going to get. It might be enough attention where you get knocked on your ass, or it might be enough attention where somebody feels sorry for you. And says, lay down, honey, I'll cook, I'll get the supper. You're sick, you're sick, you know. All right. After we put this knowledge that we learn from our friends and in a formal process of education, after we put that to use, our life begins to take on a direction. Not necessarily a direction uh, that we're going to fulfill. Our directions as kids change from day to day. I'm not too familiar with what women's directions are, but I know as a little kid, 
My directions can change not only day to day, from hour to hour sometimes. I can recall one weekend, my mother gave me a nickel, sent me to the Saturday matinee show, and I saw Tim McCoy, Colonel Tim McCoy. And Jesus, I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to be a cowboy. And that night on the way home from the show, there was a big fire and a big hook and ladder went by, and I wanted to be a fireman. The next day, my daddy took me to the Yankee Stadium, and I saw the great Babe Ruth, and I wanted to be a baseball player. Every day, I patterned my life or my wants after somebody that I had seen, somebody I had admired and respected. Now, direction is great. It's great to have, because direction gives us hope. It gives us dreams. Necessary ingredients in living, dreams and hope. Unfortunately, you and I come to dream later on and expect our dreams to be fulfilled right to the point. We call this procrastination in AA. At a meeting today, somebody said, I'm scared to think any further than five minutes from now because you say I'll get drunk. I never said that in my life. It's fine to think 50 years from now, but don't expect it to turn out the way you're thinking. Now, with this direction giving us brightness, and maturity coming in, our direction will begin to channel itself. It will funnel itself towards a career. We'll come to learn through that experience that perhaps I can't hit a curveball, so I'll never be Babe Ruth. And I'm not uh, physically strong enough to be a fireman. Or I'm allergic to horses, so I can't be Colonel Tim McCoy. Maybe I'm going to be a bricklayer. Maybe I'm going to be a doctor. Maybe I'm going to be a school teacher or a lawyer depending upon how much ambition I got and how much determination, all of this coupled together will decide how far or how close I am going to come to succeeding in whatever career I've chosen. Now, along about this time in our life, and the age limit can vary, a very important thing takes place. A lot of people, especially me, never attached any importance to this until I reflect back because it was a vital need in my life and in your life. It was a need that was fulfilled by giving me an identity, an identity. Do you recall the first time that you got a job, the first time you were actually paid for something? I'm not talking about washing the dishes for your mother. I'm talking about some of you guys who might have sold Liberty Magazine for brownies and greens trying to get a bite. Some of you might have had to shine shoes like I did with your own little box, you know. Big business, small businessman, you know. Or how about the kids selling papers on the street corner or, or jerking sodas in the corner drugstore? They don't do them things anymore, I guess. But those things gave me an identity because it made me useful. It made me something. I was now something besides being a mother's son or a father's son. I was a bootblack, or I was a magazine dealer. This made me very proud, because now I had employers and I had a job, which gave me a whole new lot of brightness, and I was happier than hell. Now, long about this time, the medical people say that between the ages of 16 and 22, the average person is at the epitome of his health. In other words, he's passed through all of the childhood diseases, and he's not old enough yet to take on any of the diseases that come with age. So that good health, that good health, of course, brings brightness. We continue on now and put all these things together gives us ability. And this ability, coupled with that ambition, the ability gathered from the experience and the knowledge from our friends, from the formal process of education, from the road towards our career, 
will determine how successful we will be. And success, as we first understand it, brings a whole lot of brightness into our life. Now, some of the things that we're going to use in AA, we use long before we ever become alcoholic. We learn one thing at this stage, most of us, most of us, with the exception of some. How about that day when your world seemed pretty bright? Your career looked good. Your dreams looked like they could be fulfilled. Your hopes were possible. And a little bit of real love came out in you. Because of the brightness in this world, you wanted to share this. You wanted somebody else to experience the brightness in your life. And this is when most of us take upon ourselves a spouse through a process called marriage. In the beginning, marriage brings a lot of brightness into our lives. In the beginning. Now, out of most marriages, out of most marriages, comes children. Children gives us another identity, either that as a father or a mother. From this, from the family, from the employers, from your own knowing that you're doing the best you can, comes a little degree of respect. Respect. Now, the next thing that will bring brightness into your life is something you and I are going to lose, you and I who are alcoholic. We're going to lose it. It's a thing called dignity. What the hell is dignity? I never could figure out what in the hell dignity was. I was told, and I firmly believe that this is all it is, all it is, is that when you know within that you are doing the very best with what you have to work for, with, to achieve whatever you're after, knowing this honestly within yourself, you walk with dignity, a sincere, Honest effort gives you dignity. As alcoholics, we lose that dignity because our efforts are way nil, way low. After the dignity, the hopes for the future. And these hopes are good because they can be built on all of our previous experience. The fulfillment might come early, the fulfillment of all our dreams. Lots of brightness then. Now a new one comes in. Wealth. And we're going to use this as alcoholics. We're going to use this twice in our lives. Because our first interpretation of wealth is like the average person, with the rare exception of those who are fortunate enough early in life to discover true wealth. I refer to those who dedicate their lives to causes and, and to religions and, and to science, uh, seeking no material gain. Uh, uh, members of the clergy, and those kind of people. But wealth, generally, by the norm, is measured only in material gain. How much do I have? Uh, is mine bigger than theirs? Do I have more than them? We refer to these things keeping up with the Joneses and stuff like that. Everything is involved in a struggle, a struggle to achieve enormous amounts of wealth. Because that's normal, and because wealth does bring brightness into your life, it has to in many areas. You begin to have complete faith in everything you're doing. And at this stage, when all of this brightness is in your life, you can look back 
you've reached what people refer to as adulthood. In other words, this is when a guy is called a, a man's man, or a woman is called a class broad, and I'll qualify, my, qualify myself on that. A lot of people get offended when I use that word broad, but where I come from, that's a hell of a, a, hell of a compliment to be called a class broad. I call Rose Kennedy a class broad. Uh, I work for Grace Kelly's old man as a bricklayer, and she's a class broad. Because that's, in the eastern part of the United States, that, that's sort of a, a title with assholes like me put on to people we respect. It's not what you think it is. I know where the word broad was derived from. In case you don't know, I'll tell you. Years ago, when we only had one naval fleet that operated out of the Atlantic coast. It operated out of the Philadelphia Navy Yard. It was the only Navy Yard on the East Coast. And when our sailors would go to sea for long extended periods of time, three, six months, nine months, and then turn around and they'd start back to the United States towards Philadelphia with only one thing on their mind, of course, baseball. <laughs> And they would enter the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Now, if you've never been to the Philadelphia Navy Yard, the main street at the main gate is called Broad Street. Broad Street. And Broad Street is just what you would expect at the entrance to a Navy Yard. Bunch of cat houses, speakeasies, and joints like that. So the word broad was derived from Broad Street. But I don't mean that here. Uh, one person really got me off the hook on that because, believe it or not, and Paul, our central office secretary, knows of the difficulty I had with that in the beginning. We actually have a group in Myrtledale called the Broads Group. Gee, I got women that still won't come to it on account of that name. But I had the pleasure of having Sister Mary Elizabeth from Honolulu, Hawaii, stay at our facility for a number of days when she came to speak. And the only thing she asked me to do was if she could chair that meeting on Saturday afternoon. It's just a little tiny meeting, you know, whatever chicks are there, go to the meeting, and a few come from Santa Rosa. And I said to her, I said, Sister Mary, what the hell do you want to do that for, you know? She said, I can't wait to say I'm a member of the Broads. <laughs> she really wanted to say that. It was beautiful. She was a hell of a broad, hell of a broad. <laughs> All right, now see. Think in your own lives now. This might be hard for many of you to believe at this time, but everybody in this room, everyone, experienced a day in your life when all of this brightness was there. All of it was there, with the exception of those of you who didn't marry or father or mother children, of course. But there was a day in your life when you looked up and said, Jesus, it's great to be here. Things are going to be great. It's a whole big ball of wax. It's a big adventure. I'm glad I'm alive. I don't know where you were when that happened. Maybe it was the day you got out of the university. Maybe it was the day you got your first job. The day you come home from the war. The day you had your first child. I don't know. But there was a day. And it was great to be alive. And then it happens. Then it happens to you and I. The only thing we're interested in here today, alcoholism. It could be anything to anybody else. But with you and I, it was a disease called alcoholism. Not a disease because I say it's a disease, or Paul says it's a disease, or Missouri's McCambridge says it's a disease, 
or David Frost says it's a disease. There's only one group of people in the United States who are qualified to state what is a disease and what is not a disease. And that's the very respected members of the American Medical Association. And it is them who said alcoholism is a disease. Unfortunately, that's as far as science has gone. Like anybody else, they too are confused. They admit this confusion. What kind of a disease is it? Is it a virus? No. Is it a mental disease? Physical disease? Moral disease? Why don't you use willpower? Uh, try willpower with diarrhea. <laughs> but we get warnings about our disease. We get warnings about our disease. Little, little bits of red lights go on. These little red lights, these warnings are going to cause our world of brightness to get dark again. I don't know what your first warning was. It doesn't make a hell of a lot of difference, does it? Suppose the first warning is just dismissal. You're fired. We don't need you. No job. Well, that causes a little darkness because it takes away that job. It takes away employers. You're not too damn useful now. Takes a little bit of that wealth away. But hell, that isn't too bad a world at that. That's pretty bright yet. So we switch to vodka. <laughs> we get another warning. Get another warning. Yeah. The wife says, I don't want to live with you. Get out. Me? I'm afflicted with a disease. What do you mean, get out? <laughs> Love, honor, and obey through sickness and through health? How can you say that to me when I'm so sick? You know, a lot of the jackasses that I get, and I used to say the same thing, can't understand why a wife wants to divorce them when they're drunks. My wife don't have no compassion. <laughs> don't she know I'm sick? And you'll hear A say this. It's a disease just like cancer. People who have cancer don't pee on their wives in death. <laughs> there goes the marriage right out the window. There goes the respect. The kids tell you to get lost. Those the identity is being a father. That dignity is really shot now, and you're sure as hell not a man's man now. It's getting a little bit darker. Why is she getting rid of me? You know? I have to tell you something that I like to say in AA, not to cause any controversy. Yeah, yeah, of course. But. <laughs> I like to hit some of them straight-laced deacons with this every now and then. You know, every now and then you'll, you get outside with the normal people who are trying to work with alcoholics, and many doing good jobs, many doing good jobs. They inevitably come to this conclusion at the end of their seminars or their three-day conventions and meetings and all of that. They say Alcoholics Anonymous works because the alcoholic is full of compassion and they work with each other. They love each other. And then you'll hear one of these jerks say, why, even on Skid Row, they'll share their last drink. <laughs> 
I look for you to half a dozen street in Chicago, and I guarantee you if you had come within three blocks of me while I was on my last bottle of dark port, I would have killed you! I would have killed you! If you even looked like you was going to ask me for a drink, I would have killed you! Compassion, my foot! A good way I always prove this to my guest, that this compassion is, is not to be misconstrued with carrying the drunk is this way, the same way you tell the husband why his wife says, get out. Let's imagine now, just for the hell of it, that we're all up in Calistoga. You're all guests at Myrtledale, just for the heck of it, you know. And I've got you all in a semi-private room. Everybody here has got a semi-private room. That means there is one empty bed in everybody's room. And now you're going to go to bed, you alcoholic. You compassionate members of AA. You who work with each other and love each other. Did you hear it? A drunk just pulled up in front. He's in a San Francisco cab. Hear the door slam? He wants to give the cabbie a check. Who's going to $117? There he is. You see him? He's got the big hole in his head. Hasn't shaved in a week. Festered scab on the sore. Snot is caked under his nose. Ah, saliva coming out of his mouth. Puke all over his shirt. He's peed in his pants or worse. Hey, Where are you now? Remember the room you got? Who wants him? Raise your hand. Where are you, oh compassionate fellow? <laughs> There'd be a line a mile long by the office. Everybody be transferred to give me a private room, Ray. Give me a private room. Give me a private room. And I can't understand why my wife doesn't want me around the house. <laughs> the next warning we get could be rather serious. It might come in the form of a blackout. I discussed blackouts a little bit last week. During this blackout, something happens that you didn't intend to happen. Something you hadn't planned on happening. All of a sudden, you come to. And Christ, it's Tuesday. What am I doing in Sacramento? Whose cigar butt is that? Am I pregnant? Where's my husband? Oh, you forget about that. But that's enough to take a little bit of that faith out of your life. That adds a little darkness. And that fulfillment and hope sure as hell go there. And you begin to wonder some more. Maybe you're a guy. And you wake up in Atlanta, Georgia. And the last thing you remembered, you was in Chicago, Illinois. With $19. And now it's four days later. And you got $782 in your pocket. And what's more, there's no booze in the room. You try to figure out how you got to Atlanta, Georgia. Why you're in a room where there's no booze. And where did you get that $782? Of course, being a practical alcoholic, you don't go backtracking to find out. You just rationalize that you found it. You found it. <laughs> Those kind of things take away ability and success. And your ambition and determination goes awful quick along with that pride. 
Your world is getting awful dark now, but you still insist on drinking. All sorts of warnings can come. Mental damage, physical damage, causing a career in a direction and wet brain that takes away all your knowledge, and you wind up like many of us, with nothing more than a few friends, but you still have that degree of happiness because you've got some kind of shelter. You're probably at this stage madly in love with yourself. And you're still alive, still alive. And finally, the thing that we don't believe in till it happens, does happen. The friends finally let go, finally let go. So many people, so many people think that they will always have their friends. The boss might go, the kids might go, the wife might go, and I'd go my pal, or Joe, my buddy. I always get a kick out of all of the drunks that come to places like ours, you know, who say, oh, I got a million friends, Joe the bartender, Mike the bartender. These guys never get any mail. Nobody sends them a carton of cigarettes. Nobody calls up, how's Bill? How's Jack? All their buddies, you know, all their friends. They drop them like a hot potato, just like they drop you. And then you're left. And then this will be broken. This will be broken to take away that happiness. Eventually, either you don't have the shelter, or you come to the full realization of what in the hell you are, and that love goes. So there can be no happiness. And you might stand with nothing more left but your life. But your life. Unfortunately, as described in the third chapter of this book, Many of us, many of us, arrive at this point, past the gates of insanity. Many in this room have been past the gates of insanity. And then we're faced with a hell of a decision to either surrender or go on, or go on. Some surrender, some don't surrender. If you choose not to surrender, you have to go. You are forced to go if you're to remain alive to the only society that will accept you any longer. This is the society that we've labeled or named an area called Skid Row. It's my firm contention that everybody, everybody must go to Skid Row. But not that Skid Row that I'm defining here, not that place that Jack London talks about, not a couple of blocks of cheap restaurants and cheap booze and cheap hotels. No, no, no. Because on the physical skid row, the same thing takes place on that mental skid row. Because the same key has to be used to get off of a Silk Sheet skid row or Madison Street or the Bowery or Third and Howard. The same key. The skid row that I think that we must all go to is wherever you are. Regardless of where you are that day or that moment, whether it be in your kitchen, whether it be in a hospital bed, whether it be in a church pew, maybe it's in your car crossing the bridge, maybe it's in a jail cell, but wherever you are for that moment, when you look back with an absolute, honest, sincere look at not only what you've done to yourself, but what you have done to those around you, and you disgustedly admit that it's the fault of no one else except yourself. 
and you vow to yourself in honesty that you will try, you will try to correct that situation, wherever you are for that moment, because that's defeat. That's pulling the blanket off you. That's calling yourself just what you are. If you're a bastard at that level, then call yourself a bastard, because it's there that you expose yourself to yourself for the real you. And the real you ain't very nice, and you know it. If it was nice, you wouldn't have been trying to run away from it from years and years, trying to run away from ourselves as we've always done. We drink as alcoholics because we can't face ourselves. We can't do business with ourselves because to do business with yourself makes one absolute demand. Honesty. And no practicing alcoholic can afford honesty or truth. And until we accept that defeat, we ain't got a chance in hell. I could not accept the defeat. I chose the skid row because of my misinterpretation of the word defeat. I thought defeat was the final thing. You're beaten, you're down, you're out. I had to be taught different that defeat is not a final thing. The easiest way I have to show you that it's not final is to use the story that I use many times when I describe to what I consider the greatest racehorse that ever lived, the greatest racehorse that ever lived, champion of champions, was a great horse called Man of War, known throughout the entire world as the greatest of all thoroughbreds. And even this great horse, who only lost once in his entire life, but he did suffer a defeat. It's ironic that the name of the horse that beat Man of War was a horse called Upset. And the horse Upset never won another race. But even though this great horse had been beaten, he still recognized today as the champion of champions, which proved to me that defeat is not a final thing, that you can come back. And then I made a decision to try to come back, to protect my life. I was a coward. I did not want to die. Now, if there be any military people in here, you should be quick to know what has to be done when I am trying to protect the only thing that I have left from the invading forces of death, which these red lights represent. I must completely surround myself with protection, better known as a defense, a defense. You can't put up a half-assed defense in anything. Many of us in AA do it. It's the same thing with them wagon trains when they used to come out here in the olden days. You know, they'd come and they'd park at night. Ward Bond would say, put them all in a circle, boys. And they get them in a circle. And it's funny, them wagon trains were just like AA, just like AA. Because there's jackasses in AA, too. And there's jackasses in wagon trains. Like a couple of guys said, oh, listen to that wagon master. He says, no smoking after 9 o'clock. Let's get outside of the circle and do it our way. So they go sit on the side of a hill outside of the wagon train and smoke. Then a couple other guys say, I don't like the wagon master. Do you? I hate his personality. Let's go sleep on the other side of the wagon train. So they go sleep on another hill. And then a couple of guys want to chip you around instead of following the rules of the wagon master. 
They say, well, look, if we stay inside the circle, we got to go by his rule. Let's get outside and make our own rules. So they get outside the wagon train. Now we got about three big groups of guys hanging out outside that wagon train. The group is inside the wagon train, protected. And Cochise hears about them wise guys out there. And he makes a big straight shot at that wagon train, and who gets it first? Some jackasses out there smoking them cigarettes, just like that. Then he gets the chippiers next. Then he finds the two guys who hate the wagon master. <laughs> they got out from the protection. You must surround yourself. And how do you surround yourself in AA? Or how do you sa surround yourself from that alcoholism? The first thing you have to do, first thing, you've got to be willing. got to be willing to do something about it. There's no willingness that you ain't got a chance. Well, common sense will tell you that's not enough, though, because you're only protected on one side. Maybe you can keep this guy out way over here, but you've still got a lot of avenues wide open. So somebody comes along and says, look, there's more to being willing. You've got to put that into action. Get out and do something about this willingness to stay sober. So you say, all right, I'll get off my butt. I'll start investigating ways to stay sober. And as our book tells us, we investigate everything else first. <laughs> Wig pickers, shrinks, switching drinks, you know, the whole third chapter. And eventually we come to what is referred to today, today, by that same American Medical Association. Not by AA. You won't find this in AA literature, but you'll find it in American medical journals. Their definition of the most successful program of recovery from the disease of alcoholism known to man as of this day is a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. You've got to get a set of rules. You've got to get some guidelines, something to go by. Now you're protected on three sides. Sure, maybe you've lowered the, minimized the chance there, but you're still open on another avenue here. And in this program, we talk about that other defense, and as it so aptly puts it in our book, there will come a time, there will come a time, that there will be no defense against the first drink. Only that of a power greater than yourself, a person whom we, we choose to call God. Just as soon as this defense is started, what happens? The brightness has to come back. How about that first night when you walked into AA? when you thought it was all over. No chance for me, I'm hopeless. I'll go, but I don't know why. Just as soon as you walked in there, there was love. Not the kind of love, you know, that me and you uh, used to think about, shacking up in motels and rumble seat love. No, no. Boom, that kind of love, you know, where it really hurts. That's how you tell somebody loves you in AA. You hate them. You know, you know what the badge of success in the recovery business is? When everybody calls you a son of a bitch, Truman's the most successful guy I know, because I've heard him call a son of a bitch more times than me. <laughs> because our kind of love is telling people things that they don't want to hear, telling them to do things they don't want to do. I've best defined love in other groups when I describe a scene in the Sierra Mountains to show you what AA love is all about. I want you to all imagine you have a beautiful ranch-style home up there at 6,000 elevation or something like that. 
and you're sitting in it today. And it's a beautiful day up in the Sierras. The sun's sun is shining on the snow, and the snow is still virgin white, no tracks, no nothing. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And as you sit in this beautiful ranch-style home, one whole wall of your living room is nothing but pure glass, and you gaze out on this majestic scene. It's fantastic. And you've got your little five-year-old son inside. And because you love this little son, you've got him protected, too. You've got the thermostat set at 72, so the house is warm. And there he is toddling around on the floor under your care because you love him. And as you look out into the snow and you see the snow and the green of the trees and the blue of the skies, and about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the day that I saw this, and I believe it happens every day. I don't think I was having any spiritual awakening. The sun sort of hit the rocks up there, the bare sides of the cliff. And the sun ricocheted off of those cliffs, and it hit that blanket of snow, and it turned that pure white into sort of a light blue crystal. It's the most fantastic sight I've ever seen in my life for a description of beauty. And you see this now. And you want this little child that you love. And because you love him, you want him to experience the delight in seeing that scene, seeing that beauty, and going out and experiencing the delight in playing in the snow. Because you love him. Well, you don't go over in front of the fireplace and just pick him up in his, snow, in his sun suit and take him out into the snow. No, you want to protect this thing you love. So what do you do? You get a snowsuit to put on this little child. And if you're not familiar with putting snowsuits on children, it's rather simple. You put him between your legs with his back to you. Then you put this leg in like that, and you put that leg in, and you pull it up over his hiney like that. And then you've got to put two little five-year-old arms into two little sleeves. Now, usually when his arm is up here, you've got the sleeve down here. And then you're up here, and he's down here. And this goes on, this little game, and you sort of smile at first, like you do in AA when you're working with somebody. And you're having a lot of difficulty trying to match the opening with the arm. And as the temperature rises, you begin to get hotter and hotter and hotter because you're not getting nowhere. And then all of a sudden, you grab this little five-year-old kid. You God damn it, you son of a bitch! Stand still! And that little child whom you love is frozen in terror. And while he is frozen, <laughs> zip him up, put the hood on him, tie him, pat him on the butt, send him out into the snow, full of your love, full of your protection, and he's outside hating your guts. He doesn't know that you have just loved him. <laughs> That's what AA is all about. It's the same way. Come to the meeting, you'll like it. As soon as you bring him down there, boom! You're this, you're that, you're that, you're a bum, you're slob, character defect, bang, you tear a guy up! And you told him he was gonna love it down there. That's how you tell a good sponsor. You wanna kill him about ten times a year. Burn him, anything. With that love that you get from that group comes back the brightness because you now have shelter again.
you are protected by a program, by a group if you want to get smaller. And again, the combination has to give you some degree of happiness. Even on that very first night when everything else seemed dark, that little tiny bit of happiness that was afforded to you because there was now hope, I might be able to do it. You take upon new friends, which add to brightness, the new knowledge forms a new direction. Perhaps you're not going to get that career back. You don't get everything back, not all of us. Depending upon how much ambition you get back will determine whether you will be proud enough to be useful enough and get a job and get them employers back. Lots of brightness. Many of us, that's as far as we're going to go right there. But other people have told us, and the book tells us, more shall be revealed. More shall be revealed. And each day of sobriety, each week of sobriety, each month or each year, more is revealed. And perhaps your ability will determine how successful you will once more become. And then comes maybe the marriage, maybe not. Maybe that's kaput. Maybe the scars are too deep. The hurt was too painful. Many, many don't come back. The respect will come back. Maybe not from the spouse. Maybe not even from the children. But will respect will come back from the group, the new employers, anybody who gets to know you in your new way of your life. That dignity arrives in AA all different levels, all different levels. Some of us can get that dignity back right away. I don't think I have it back yet because I still hedge a little bit. I still cheat a little bit. I still cut a few corners. There are areas that I know I could do better in. So I don't think I've got all of that dignity because dignity has to be, as I said before, knowing honestly from within that I am doing the very best that I can with what ability I have to work with. That fulfillment comes and then we hit wealth. But our wealth is new now or it should be new because on our program we no longer measure wealth materially. If you do, you're on thin ice. We measure wealth in the form of the gift, the gift that you and I have been given. There's no other reason in the world to describe why you and I sit here or assemble here tonight afflicted with the number one disease, number one killer known to man, and yet other people are on the outside dying at this very moment for the exact same thing you have. So we treasure this gift. In the beginning, we want to keep it. We want to hold it real close. But then we're told we can't do that, that we have to give this gift away. And when we give this gift away, we're giving true wealth. Because wealth is nothing more than giving of yourself. That is the epitome of wealth. Many times you hear of great feats of medicine, guys in Stanford University transplanting hearts. Now that's great. South Africa, they transplant hearts. 
University of California Hospital, they, they transplant kidneys and stuff like that. Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago, they transplant eyes. These are such great events that the news media banners it all over the world. Heart transplant in Africa. Eye transplant in Turkey. Kidney transplant in San Francisco. Feats accomplished by learned men, scientists, professional men. A form of wealth. And yet you and I, as so aptly described in why we were chosen, the so-called outcasts of the world, the unwanted, the sick, the unwise, the bewildered, and the confused, we are given a gift far greater than any scientist or any medicine man ever dreamed. It's true. No one in AA can transplant a heart. No one in AA can transplant kidneys or eyes. But you and I have been given the gift to transplant lives. The whole world. We have the ability, the experience and the knowledge to take those who are humble and sick and weak and say, hold close to me and I will give you back your life. The fact that many of us sit in this room right now stand as a testimonial to that fact. It can be done. It can be done. And that's the wealth that we have now which gives us Faith, not only in ourselves, faith in a power greater than ourselves that we choose to call God, and faith in the most successful program of recovery known to man, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And once more, we are referred to as a man's man or a class broad. But any time, any time that we lower any of these defenses, any time the darkness can come back, and perhaps the next time when the darkness comes back, it won't come back as slow as it went the first time. The next warning that we get might short-circuit the whole thing. Bang! Just like that. For silly little things like willingness. Oh, why should I go tonight? Gun smoke is on. I'm tired. You let down a little bit of that willingness. Sure, you're still safe. You've got your program of recovery. You got all the father file records. You got all the tapes from Bart. Eighteen books on alcoholism, and you're going to sit home by the chair and have your own meeting. So your program is shot. And then all of a sudden, and this only happens, I think, my own opinion, please. You usually see these guys show up about eight months after they're on their program. That's the guys that cast away that power greater than themselves when we choose to call God. You know, I, I don't like it too much when I hear people say, call it whatever the hell you want to call it. Thirty-five years ago, if those hundred men and women who founded this program and wrote that book wanted you to take it that way, I'm pretty sure they would have wrote it that way. They told you that God could and would if he was sought. They didn't say some chair or some tree or some clock or a picture on the wall. They weren't talking about religion. But all of a sudden, eight months in AA, some guy will get up and say, let's knock off this religion crap. We're all the time talking about God in this program. Let's talk about something else, like pussy. Yeah. Let's have a smoker instead of a meeting. Yeah. I'm an atheist. I don't want to hear that crap. 
I'm an agnostic. Let's talk about pills. There is no God. I don't believe and I never have believed. Have you ever heard those words, I never have believed? That's the biggest lie known to man. And I'll prove it to you right now. And I'll use you as the proof. We all at one time in our lives believed. I know when you were five years old, you believed in these three things. You believed in Santa Claus. You believed in the Easter Bunny. And you believed in God. If you don't believe at five years old you believed in God, ask every five-year-old kid you see from now on. Have you ever seen a five-year-old atheist? Have you ever seen a five-year-old agnostic? No, no. It's we who cast aside this God as we understand him. Legitimately, too, I guess in some instances. I imagine when I cast this God aside, there is no God. You know, I learned there was no Santa Claus. Then I learned there was no rabbit. That was my mother putting the candy in there. But who ever told you that there wasn't a God? Where did you ever take it upon yourself, or did I take it upon myself to assume that there's no power greater than myself? I must have sometime along the way have made a demand upon God or a request upon God. And this God, as I understand him, in his wisdom, in his wisdom, decided to deny my request, to not fulfill the demand that I made. And because he didn't tell me about it, I assumed that there couldn't be no God because he didn't do what I told him to do. And I lived without that God. And I suffered without that God until you people taught me to accept this God. So any time that I'm insane enough to let down any one of those defenses, to relax my vigil, my life is threatened. And it's this program of recovery, coupled with this God as I understand him, and your constant insistence on my own willingness and my own action that permits me to walk with what I call a semblance of dignity today. Thank you very much.